can Congress do to help improve the state of cybersecurity in the healthcare sector? I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Leslie Krigstein, Vice President of Congressional Affairs at the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives. Leslie will be discussing CHIME's recent call upon Congress to consider several suggestions for legislation that CHIME says could potentially help improve cybersecurity in the healthcare sector. So, Leslie, CHIME recently submitted to the Senate a statement for a recent hearing on ransomware threats. In that statement, CHIME calls upon lawmakers to consider several suggestions that could help the healthcare sector improve its overall cybersecurity. Among CHIME's suggestions is that policymakers should look for ways to encourage investment through positive incentives for those who demonstrate a, quote, minimum level of cyber attack readiness and mature information risk management programs. So, Leslie, specifically, what kind of potential incentives would help the healthcare sector invest more in cybersecurity, financial incentives, tax breaks, something else? I think it's a a combination of those things, and I would also say to really flip the narrative on its head. So, you know, right now, if you're subject to a breach, there's the wall of shame, and it's often the stick approach, especially when you're looking at security. And from our perspective, as much as the patients are victims to data being breached, the reality is the healthcare institution organization system is also a victim. And what we're hoping to do is to kind of improve the overall security stature of the industry, starting with the smallest practices up through the largest academic medical centers, because the reality is now that interoperability is really a national mandate and an expectation from the patient perspective, you're only as secure as your weakest link. And so when we're thinking about incentives for security, we're thinking about whether it be taking a look at the market basket for which hospital payment is based on and thinking, okay, is there a multiplier or a factor that could be added in for exceptional security practices or protocols? Or even as we're starting to dig into the macro rules that are redefining how physicians are paid under Medicare, you know, could we look to advancements under the clinical practice improvement category and using that as a a factor for justifying a boost in financial incentive? And then there's kind of other ways to think about it. So what could the federal government do in terms of resources and other incentives that may not necessarily all come in the form of a a punitive penalty or a financial boost, but what else is there to provide kind of an effort to show goodwill? Or is that something like a safe harbor? So if you can show that you've met a minimum level of security or even a maximum level of security and you are still victim of a ransomware attack or another attack on your network, should you still be held to those same kind of punitive charges or should there be some level of safe harbor? Because you know as well as I do, Marianne, at this day and age, the federal government, some of the biggest retailers, we're all experiencing these breaches and a small rural healthcare organization in rural America does not have the same ability, whether it be financial or even personnel or experience to fend off those same threats that the biggest retailers in the world are facing. So it's a little bit of everything. And Leslie, when you say punitive, are you referring to the OCR penalties that can be imposed upon organizations that have breaches? 
Exactly. So if you're able to demonstrate that you have met at least a floor, if not more, maybe that could come into consideration as OCR is evaluating kind of what actions they're going to take. Chime also suggests that Congress consider ways to reduce the regulatory complexity of privacy, security, and risk management regulations. Any examples? For instance, states have their own privacy laws, but what else might Congress consider doing? To give you an example, if you look at medical devices, so the FDA approves medical devices, and they primarily focus on patient safety. And so they're looking at the functionality of the device as it relates to patient safety. And what we're saying is in this day and age, medical devices are starting to have a target on them, whether it be to, you know, in the, the doomsday scenario, manipulate the functionality of the device, or really to be able to be an entry point for bad actors and to even take that data. And so looking at Safety is not just kind of safety in the traditional sense in device functionality, but kind of bring that to the next level and say safety is very much a data security and a data privacy piece of the conversation as well. So as we're looking at the FDA approval, maybe start to think about building in some security functions, not just looking at safety. Because what we're hearing from CIOs is that, or even the CISOs, some of these medical devices still have some of the basic entry-level security, whether it be standard passwords that can't be changed, or there's a lot of confusion about if you add extra security to a medical device, do you then have to send it back through the FDA approval process? And kind of how that works with something like your risk assessment that you do under meaningful use for report to OCR, report to ONC. And how do those things work together now that you are often networking devices and how that data is supposed to feed back into the to the EHR? So kind of taking the example of just what's going on within HHS and how there are different directives and different functions for kind of the privacy and security of patient data, of PHI. So kind of looking internally at how we can improve the question of, do these devices need to go back through FDA approval if you do add an extra layer of security? That's a big question and has been a big bone of contention for our membership. But you're exactly right, too. If you're looking at some state laws have kind of stricter requirements than others. Oftentimes, it's a matter of you're seeing patients in from multiple states, and if you have a breach, there's no standard breach reporting, often very state to state, which as you could imagine, could be a headache for some border states and the CIOs there. There's just a, a number of examples that we've kind of just piled things on, and it's almost time to take a step back and see how we can harmonize those initiatives kind of across the country, but also internal to HHS and broader across the federal government. Another suggestion from Chime is for lawmakers to consider new workforce development programs for healthcare cybersecurity. Can you elaborate on that at all? For instance, are there cybersecurity skill shortages in healthcare that are more dire than what other industries are reporting these days? There are significant workforce shortages in healthcare cybersecurity, and what our CIOs or even the CISOs will tell you is you can often find someone that might have experience in healthcare, but they don't have the IT security background or kind of the opposite. You find someone who can come from another sector and comes into healthcare, and there's a very steep learning curve, and there really isn't that kind of perfect harmony of a lot of folks that have experience in both IT security and healthcare. And we've seen some initiatives, even in the president's executive 
order, he called for workforce development with a focus on minority institutions and trying to grow the workforce from there. But I think we would recognize that last year was the year of healthcare breaches, and we've seen the trend continue to this year, and only more data is becoming digital, and we're only kind of opening up the points of entry, whether it be to patients or other providers or other entities in the healthcare ecosystem. So the need is only growing, and there's been a continued trend in in workforce shortages, and we think that if we can start kind of educating the next generation, hopefully we can catch up more quickly to the other institutions. We're not able necessarily to offer the same compensation, and we're seeing a huge level of turnover from healthcare CISOs and IT security staff kind of going to other sectors, but we think that this is absolutely key as we're looking toward the future and making sure that we're as equipped as we possibly can be moving forward. Because healthcare is a highly regulated industry, whether you're looking at HIPAA or meaningful use or seeing how all of those play together, it's a tough job and there's just not enough folks on the horizon now that have experience to be able to kind of fill in as necessary today. So now Leslie Charm has, again, as many organizations actually have done, have urged Congress to consider lifting the ban that's been on HHS for quite a while now that prohibits HHS to fund the development of a unique patient ID or a national ID. Are there any signs that Congress is leaning in that direction of, you know, reconsidering this issue? And what would you like to see done? I think we've seen some progress kind of stemming from some basic education and honestly a recognition of the current state of the industry. If you look at the Senate Health Committee's Health IT Innovations Bill, there was a directive to ONC to evaluate the current practices being used for patient mashing. And I think that's a a great step in the right direction. We saw in the House 21st Century Cures Package that passed last July, a recognition that patients deserve to have the right to know that the information in their record belongs to them. And as much as those may sound like baby steps, it's definitely an evolution that we're seeing in the policy world. And we've seen others, Senator Warren in a hearing late last year, spoke to this issue and cited some statistics on mismatches and the importance of identification. And similarly, we've seen Senator Cassidy on the other side of the aisle, who's a physician, kind of speak from his personal experience and say that without some mechanism of identification we're never going to achieve interoperability. So we're hearing the narrative change for sure in ways that we hadn't over the past 16 plus years that the existing ban had been in place. To say that I think the the ban's going to go away tomorrow, I, I don't think that would be genuine. But I think we are starting to see some progress in thinking. And really just as folks are starting to realize and as patients have started to have this expectation of my doctor collected my information in an, a computer and an electronic health record. How come when I crossed the street and went to the hospital, how come that data is not there? And so I think we're starting to see on the patient side an expectation expectation that why don't you have my data? Why am I signing the same consent policy time after time and providing the same information over and over again? Isn't that what this whole meaningful use program was supposed to be for? And so I think we're starting to get pressure on all sides to find a solution. And I think we've also seen some efforts in the private sector to toot chimes horn a little bit. We launched a million-dollar challenge earlier this year to find a 100% patient 
information identification solution. And we just wrapped up the first phase of that competition. So it's really coming to the point of there's a lot of interest in the private sector in terms of the availability of solutions. Congress has started to recognize that this conversation needs to mature to match the current state of the industry and the needs of the industry and patients. And we're really hearing patients say, how come this isn't the case? And explaining to them, it's definitely our duty to explain to them, this is why. So I think the ball is rolling. It may not be rolling as quickly as it needs to, but I think there definitely needs to be some recognition of the progress made, and hopefully the final result is on the horizon. And I think the reason why this conversation has evolved is for a long time it really stopped and started on the notion of a unique patient identifier. And I think now in the 21st century, in this day and age, there are so many other technologies available saying that you don't necessarily need to assign a number, but there is probably some other technology whether it be biometrics or combination of biometrics or geolocation or others that hopefully will come to the forefront in our challenge that will start to dissuade those fears of using a single either numeric or alphanumeric identifier. And that's where I think we're starting to get some pickup from Congress. I think Congress is also intrigued by the notion of a solution that may be administered in the private sector rather than held by the government. And that may start to, again, kind of lessen those fears of the government having all of this data at their fingertips, which has been a a huge concern in the privacy community over the history of this issue. So now, Leslie, as I stated earlier, these and other suggestions that CHIME made to Congress were part of a statement that CHIME submitted to a Senate subcommittee hearing on ransomware attacks. What has CHIME been hearing from its member CIOs and CISOs about ransomware attacks on their organizations? How rampant is this issue for these organizations, and what are they dealing with? It's a very real issue for every CIO. I had given an example a few weeks ago. I was talking to a CIO from very rural America. It's a 130-bed community hospital. And the statistic I had was from Mother's Day. And they had nearly 3,500 attempted penetrations of their network just on Mother's Day. And when you think about that, if that's happening to a small hospital in a very rural area, then it's happening to everyone. We heard from one of the large East Coast health systems that they turned away over a million ransomware emails in the month of March alone. So you're hearing these stories, not all of them make it into the press, but the issue is very real. But the one thing that CIOs and even the CISOs will tell you is ransomware is just the threat of the day. It's just another strain of malware. And it kind of causes the same concern, but the odds are, again, the threats are just going to mature and we'll probably see something out come to the forefront in the very near future. But it's also very emblematic of the fact that they have hacked so many records that the value is starting to decrease on the black market that they're now recognizing that you can monetize healthcare operations. So they can get a lot more money for shutting down a hospital system or blocking access to a network than they can get by posting identities of from the data that they've been able to dig out of an EHR, out of a hospital network. So it's a very real concern, I would say, every CIO has experienced it. As long as you've got the right incident response plan in place, 
It hopefully is not an issue if you've got your data backed up or if it's on one computer or even 100 computers, it's going to vary and the impact is going to vary based on the footprint of the organization. So it's a huge concern. It's something that we are actively trying to educate our members on and get them resources on. But unfortunately, it's just kind of the flavor of the day. Do you hear of many organizations that actually pay? I know there's been a few that have been spotlighted in the press, but are more organizations paying than we realize, or are they able to deal with these attacks on their own without paying? I don't know in terms of the kind of ratio of who pays and who doesn't, but I think there's definitely been some concern, and we saw Senator Boxer write to the law enforcement agencies and say, you know, what's the precedent that's been sent by folks paying the ransom? So I think hopefully our members have adequate incident response plans in place and their data is backed up so they're not having to pay. But I do know there are incidents other than those that are in the press that folks have paid. And I think something that got a lot of attention was the hospital in Kansas that paid the ransom and then the bad actors refused to hand back all the data. And so I think that's a very real concern. It's it's an old-fashioned shakedown and it's just happening and instead it's jeopardizing lives and that's just not okay. I don't know fully who pays the ransom and who does but I think there's more going on than is probably in the headlines. And finally, Leslie, since this conversation has been about a call to Congress on considering different ideas, anything that you suggest that Congress can do in terms of addressing this whole ransomware issue, either in general or sorts of things we're seeing in the healthcare sector? I think the hearing brought up attempts to thwart botnets and bring bad actors to justice, and I think that will be important because if we can start demonstrating that we are able to find these bad actors, there was a lot of conversation about the use of Bitcoin. The more that we can show them that this isn't a win-win for them, that we are able to fight back and we will bring them to justice, I think will go a long way. I think there are other things underway, both within the administration and on Capitol Hill, that will pay dividends in terms of improving the healthcare industry industry's ability to combat such threats. HHS right now has their healthcare cyber task force that just started meeting in March that's going to promulgate recommendations for use within the industry. I know internal to HHS now as a result of the Cyber Information Sharing Act that was signed into law late last year. HHS is working on a coordination plan internal to the agency. And I think, again, kind of getting back to the notion of harmonizing activities within the agency and that having an impact on the sector, I think that coordination plan will be very beneficial. And then I think looking at the improvements within a cybersecurity framework and they're trying to modernize it. We've heard conversations about possible healthcare-specific guidance coming from this. So if that pans out, I think that would be a huge benefit to the industry, but I think the more that we're sharing threat intelligence as the Cyber Information Sharing Act pushes us to and helps the industry come together, the better off we're going to be. So I think there are good things underway. Unfortunately, it probably wasn't soon enough, but we're definitely making progress in the right direction. Thanks, Leslie. I've been speaking to Leslie Krigstein. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.